So last week we started this, uh, the first session of a four-session series on church membership. And this is coinciding with our changing our membership policies and procedures to incorporating a four-week membership class. And so this is our membership class. And so class is now in session. It, hopefully on your way in, you grabbed an outline. That'll be our guide through God's Word this morning. And the answers will be provided on the screens as we move along, but we answered four big questions last Sunday that were to build a framework for us moving forward in this series. And those four questions were, who is the church? And that was very specific, not what is the church, but who is the church? Who is in charge of the church? And then what is the purpose of the church and why covenant? So as we move through Colossians 1 and we looked at verses 1 through 23, we saw the answers to these questions or really began to answer some of these questions because as I said last week, each one of those could be its own sermon title or series of sorts. And as we examined these questions, we sought to, to find and we saw that the church is those unified by God's design through new life in Christ. So all believers are part of the church. So to be Christian and not be part of a church is unthinkable. Because as we are all part of the church, our connectivity to the church is through the local church. And so we made those distinctions and, and kind of examined those last week. And as we looked at who's in charge of the church, we saw clearly Paul lay out for us that Christ alone is the head of his church. And we saw that right there in verse 18 of Colossians 1. And then finally last week, we saw that we are a covenant people. Because as in looking at who is in charge of the church, that then informs what the purpose of the church is and that is to glorify Christ. And as I said, finally, why covenant being our final question? We saw that we are a covenant people bought by the blood of Christ that we might walk united by his design and for his glory. See, we, we saw last week as news broke about a possible Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and we saw the response of both those on right and left and those in the middle and those all over across our society, we saw responses of anguish and joy. And we should rejoice at the, the hope that that would be true, but we cannot place our hope in that alone. Because our hope does not lay in the halls of a judiciary, nor do our standards nor are our standards set by legislation. But that's the point of this morning, because this morning we're going to see thoroughly that it is God's word which drives the church. And we will see that God's word is to be the singular motivating factor behind everything that we do as a church. So yes, we rejoice in that possibility, but we do not place all of our hope in that. Because we know that this world will remain broken even at the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And we know that this world will remain sinful. 
So as we look at God's word this morning, we'll see that obedience to his word is one of the single most distinguishing characteristics of the church. I'll invite you to stand one more time in honor of the reading of God's word as we look at Colossians chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that your word would affect change in our hearts and that that change would be clearly evident as we leave this place different. We thank you for uniting us for your purpose, by your glory. And so may we be united by your design and for your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, because we're jumping right into chapter 1, we looked at, we, we jumping right back into chapter 1, we looked at the majority of chapter 1 last week and we analyzed and noted some of the contextual points of the date and kind of the stuff surrounding Paul's uh, missionary trip to Ephesus and how that then uh, there he most likely met Epaphras who then went to plant the church at Colossae and how this is one of Paul's prison epistles. Because we're jumping right back into chapter 1, it's important that we refresh our memory of everything that Paul said up to this point so that we can have the full context of what we're looking at this morning. So in verses 1 through 2, he begins with his standard greeting. But as we discussed last week, even uh, the standard greeting gives us insight into remembering that this letter is intended for a local church, a gathering of believers much like ourselves. And this is intended to guide their spiritual lives, to inform and to challenge and to rebuke. And then he goes on to tell the church how thankful he is for them, for their faith. And he tells them uh, 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 that he's thankful for their support. And he even gives them a prayer on what he's praying on their behalf for them to grow in their faith. He recounts how they first heard the gospel from Epaphras and exactly what he's praying for them. And so how humbling and reassuring this must have been. And then we go to verses 15 through 23. Paul lays out one of the most succinct and yet profound explanations of Christ that spans all of time as he starts from the beginning, showing how all things were created by him and for him. And then he points to this as the foundation for the church's unity and for Paul's own ministry. So this brings us to where we are this morning, to verse 24, which I'll read again. So look there, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now hold on. So on its face, that sounds pretty heretical, right? To, to imply that something's lacking from Christ's afflictions and to imply that he is filling that up. I mean, why would Paul do such a thing? Why would he imply that something is missing from Christ's afflictions? What on earth could be lacking from Christ's work on the cross? Well, I mean, the, the answer is nothing. And that's what Paul believes too. So what is he saying here? Well, we know, from, I mean, look at verses 21 through 23. We know he's not saying that something is incomplete in Christ's work on the cross. Look again there at verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so we know that he doesn't think that there's anything lacking in what Christ did on the cross. He, he already said that, that they were once alienated, meaning they are no longer alienated because they are in Christ. And now, because he has brought them back, that he has reconciled, rescued them from their sinful flesh by the death of his flesh on the cross, he did so to present them holy and blameless and above reproach. I mean, you continue there, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we know he's not saying that there's something missing in Christ's atonement, that it was ineffective or incomplete, but that Christ did fully accomplish what he set out to do on the cross and what he was sent to do by the Father. So what could Paul possibly mean when he says that his sufferings, his own sufferings, are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And how does this fact make him rejoice? So Paul is not saying that Christ's afflictions are lacking in the sense that they were ineffective. We've already established that or that they were incomplete. He's making a point that in his sufferings for the sake of Christ, he is continuing the work of Christ's afflictions. That is, that what is remaining in that sense is that those afflictions which Christ suffered are now poured out on his church. And so what is lacking there is not meaning that it was incomplete, ineffective, or you know, needing anything else to fulfill it, but that this is what is continuing on as a result of Christ's afflictions. And this brings up our first point this morning, which is that the church is marked by a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. The church is marked by a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. Suffering and persecution are very contextual words. Because suffering for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or China or North Korea looks very different in comparison to our suffering or our possible persecution as the church in America. However, we need look no further than the reactions of this past week to see that for us to stand firm on the truth of God's word means we face mounting cultural pressure. We must view everything we experience in this life in the light of eternity. 
Because when we do that, we gain proper knowledge and understanding from God's word. We realize that our issues, our concerns, our fears are infinitesimally small when compared to God's glory at work in our sufferings. See, Paul speaks the same way when he writes to Timothy to encourage him in his pastoral ministry in 2 Timothy 1.8. If you just want to write that out in the margin there and make a note, it'll be on the screen. 2 Timothy 1.8, where Paul writes, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He also goes on to say to Timothy again in 2 Timothy, a chapter later, just a little bit later in that letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That is to say that we come to faith by realizing, believing, and trusting in the atoning suffering of Christ on our behalf that was complete and full in its accomplishment. And our faith then is grown, our faith is widened, our faith is deepened and filled up as we grow in our suffering on his behalf. So again, look no further than what we saw last week and you'll quickly realize that persecution is coming. You'll either realize that or you're naive. So what guides us? What what helps us navigate this world of suffering? What, What helps us to see that God is working in the suffering? What helps us to see that He, by His power, is causing all things to work according to his glory, and therefore that will be our good. What is that that brings us to our first question this morning of what drives the church? What is it that dictates our comings and our goings? What is it that, that tells us what, why we are here and gather every week in and out? What, what dictates why we gather around tables together to, to look at and to discuss what's going on in our lives? Well, look at verse 25 as we continue reading. So he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What drives the church? The preaching of God's word. What was it that Jesus preached while he was here? What was it that Jesus pointed the disciples to after his resurrection? What is it that Jesus pointed to as evidence for the fact that he would be resurrected? When he instructed the disciples on the road to Emmaus, what did he lead them through? 
What was it that Peter preached that caused so many hearts to turn in repentance and in so doing begin the first local church and the global church? It was God's word. God's word is simultaneously the wheel and the rudder of the church. His vessel. So as we as a ship are steering through the course of life and going through the storms and going through the trials and going through the suffering, what is it that guides us? What is it that leads us? What is it that directs us? It's his word. Lest we be deceived that our own intellect or our own creativity or our own programs or personality or our own charm drive the church. No, it's his word. Without his word, we are a ship with no wheel and no rudder. We are adrift. Therefore, it is God's word and the preaching of God's word that drives the church. And woe be the day that I stand up here and have anything else to point us to but God's word. And that is why everything that we do as a church body is centered around, is focused on and driven by God's word. As we continue reading, we see that the preaching of God's word drives the teaching of God's word. This is why the first paragraph in our statements and affirmation of a portion of our new church covenant states the following. I've put it here on the slide. I know it'll be a little small. We can go to that next slide, Mason. Thank you, sir. So you see there. On this first paragraph in our new statement, or our new church covenant, we see that we will work and pray to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and that we will submit to God's infallible, all-sufficient, and authoritative word in accordance with Southside Baptist Church's faith statement of faith. And so that's why God's word takes the precipice of that first paragraph. Because it drives everything that we do. It is what guides us. It is what informs us. It is what corrects us and rebukes us. And so as God's word is preached and taught, we then respond by upholding God's word, standing on God's word, attaining to God's word. You continue reading there in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So how is it that God enlightens and illumines our hearts to his salvation? How is it then that we are growing in sanctification? It's through his word. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Well, where does wisdom come from? Who's the creator of wisdom? Who's the creator of knowledge? God. And where does he reveal that to us? His word. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the distinction that is made there is that the pulpit steers the church as God's word is proclaimed in preaching to the gathered body of the saints. And this directly influences then how God's word is taught in every other context within the church. From small group discipleship, Sunday school, adults, children, youth, men's Bible study, women's Bible study, 
all the way down the line. Everything that we do is affected by how we gather around God's word and apply it to our lives. We see this. Again, we looked at this chapter last week, but I'll ask you to look there again, or you can simply reference it on the screen. But 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, we looked at the the first part of this, but again, Peter, the one who started the church and and, and through that sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost, and all those that responded were around 3,000 souls, and Peter writing now, to those scattered on behalf of the faith, wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter, writing to churches that have been dispersed across the countryside because of intense persecution and suffering, writes to them to encourage them. And what is it that Peter points these suffering servants to? What is it that Peter points these persecuted Christians to as a reason for hope, as a reason to hold fast? He points them to God's Word. And how does the church not just persevere through persecution, but thrive because of persecution? How do we stare cancer in the face and say that there is purpose in our pain? How do we painstakingly pray for an end to abortion and partner with moms in crisis? We do so by holding tightly to that which drives us, to that which corrects us, to that which guides us. The living and abiding word of God. To use an old farming analogy, Ronnie, correct me if I'm wrong, God's word is both the plowshare and the seed. Was that, was that a good one? All right. So I'll explain. Ronnie probably got it right off the bat, but I'm going to have to explain it because I had to explain it to myself. So if you're unfamiliar with farming equipment and old farming equipment in particular, the plowshare was the blade that would break through the surface of the soil and move the rocks and create the row in which the seed would then be put and provide a place for the seed to fall. So this is exactly what God's word does in our hearts. As we hear the word preached, it breaks through the rocky surface of our hearts and it doesn't stop there because then God's word is also the seed that is planted in our hearts that grows and bears fruit as we go to it day in and day out. So as the soil of our hearts is tilled by God's word to become plantable, God's word also takes root in our hearts to begin to produce good fruit. And so this is why we need the word every day. This is why we need to gather to hear the word preached. This is why we need to gather around tables to teach God's word to one another, to bear with one another through God's word. 
So that every day we're breaking through that sinful, rocky surface and planting God's word deep within our hearts. So that as we walk throughout our day, we are renewed in our pursuit of holiness. And we're reminded of who God is and and we're redirected in our worship. So Paul uses a similar analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you want to make a note of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or you can turn there, it'll be on the screen. Verses 5 through 9. There was controversy in the church at Corinth. Some were siding with different teachers, different people who had been leaders in the church. And Paul writes to them to say, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Well, what are they planting? What are they watering with? What are they breaking the surface with? The word. Now this connects perfectly with my point from last week in regards to who is in charge of the church. There we saw in verse 18 of Colossians how the preeminence of Christ in all things extends to his body, the church. Therefore, we pointed out that while Christ is the head, he has placed those in authority within his church who have the special duty to shepherd and to lead and to love and to sacrifice for and preach the word to the church. Those are pastors and elders. And you look there again at verse 29 of Colossians 1. As Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And what is Paul working to do? What is he toiling for? To preach the word, to make sure that God's word is upheld, to make sure that God's word is attained to. This is the goal of the church. This is what drives us. This is what motivates us. This is what we stand on. And so Paul's struggle is marked by his desire to present everyone mature in Christ, as we saw there at the end of verse 28. And how do we present everyone mature in Christ? Well, Paul explained it for us right there. This is accomplished through the preaching and teaching of God's word. And Paul expounds upon this as he continues to the next paragraph, in the next chapter, chapter two. As you see there, he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as God's word guides us through the pain and the toil and the suffering of this broken world, which direction does it point us? Where does the compass of God's word take us? Where does that wheel and that rudder steer us? It always leads us to increase in holiness and give greater glory to God. Not for our own sakes, not for the sake of boasting in our holiness or boasting in our pride or in a classification or holiness rank, but for God to receive greater glory. God's word does not guide us to become more palatable or appealing 
or more in line with culture. Rather, it equips us for battle. And this is what we see in Ephesians 6. We see the armor of God. And in the armor of God, we're told to, to take up the full armor of God, to withstand the evil day, and having done so, to stand firm. And he says, Paul says in Ephesians 6, Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And finally, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so notice there in the armor of God that the only thing which is both an offensive and defensive weapon is what? The sword of the spirit, God's word. So this leads us to our next question and probably helps you make sense of the wording of the next question. You're like, why do you put it like that? How does the church wield God's word? So how, do we, how do we go on the offensive and the defensive? How does God's word equip us for those tasks as his church? So as we're gathering around God's word and hearing God's word preached and it's, it's compelling us to then go into the brokenness to preach God's gospel, how does the church wield God's word? We wield God's word by first and foremost never growing weary in our preaching and teaching of it. So tirelessly preaching and teaching the word. How does the church wield God's word? By tirelessly preaching and teaching the word. We never put it down. For if you're in battle and you put down your sword, something bad's about to happen to you. And so we never grow tired of carrying our sword. And this is Paul's passion in verse 29 there of Colossians. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we must unwaveringly hold to the word of God as our sure and strong foundation lest the rains come, the winds blow, you get that bad news, something happens within the family, a decision is made that you regret, and we be swept away. When we hear God's word preached, it takes root in our heart, which leads us to desire and to want more and more and more. So as we continue to hear God's word preach, but then we supplement that. We supplement that hearing God's word preached to hearing God's word taught in small group discipleship. And this only grows our appetite and our desire for God's word. But what, what does all of this produce in us? What is the goal of expository preaching? What is the goal of biblical teaching? God's glory ultimately, but how does God get greater glory from his word taking root in our hearts? through holy living, through it affecting change in our lives. God's word growing, living, and acting within our hearts to produce the fruit of holy living. And so Paul goes on there in chapter 3 of Colossians. We say, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, at the right hand of God. And set your mind on things above, not on things below, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. 
And when Christ, who is your glory, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Paul goes on to list, he, he gives this dichotomy between put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, And he gives this list of earthly things that are alive in our flesh that we need to daily put to death by putting ourselves in God's word. And then he goes on to, in verse 12, put on then, so we have this dichotomy, put to death therefore what is earthly and put on then as God's chosen holy ones and beloved compassionate hearts. And so he goes on this list of things that are fruit of bearing fruit of God's holiness at work within us. And it's there that we see this, verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive, verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Don't miss this one, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So how does the church wield God's word? By enduring as living sacrifices. So as we hear God's word, learn God's word, read God's word, then we must live according to God's word. For the word of Christ to dwell richly in our fellowship. You see the the you there, that's in verse 16. The you there is plural. So again, reminding us that he's talking to a gathered local body of believers. Lest we put ourselves in the center of scripture. So the you there being in the plural form means that for us to make it so that God's word has set up camp in our midst. That's that dwell. So let God's word live amongst you, be amongst you permanently. That God's word is not only setting up camp in our midst, but it is doing so in such a way that it is all-encompassing, which binds us and drives us and moves us to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. But the only way that that can be achieved is if we are faithful to hold one another accountable to God's word. Because if we simply tolerate, if we explain away or turn a blind eye to known willful sin or something that is knowingly against God's word and it's within our midst, then what good is the word for us if we don't stand on it, if we don't uphold it, if we don't hold each other accountable to it? So we wield God's word by holding one another accountable to live according to God's word. That's what we see there, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Well, as I asked earlier, where does wisdom come from? Who is the creator of all knowledge? It's God. And how has he revealed that to us? In his word. And so this is the purpose of church discipline, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. Well, if we're going to present everyone mature in Christ, and we are constantly at battle with our flesh, then we know that there's going to be times when there is conflict within those two things. And so therefore, we have to hold one another accountable to God's word. And to present someone mature implies growth. Growth in anything comes with wrestling through mistakes, trials, and wrestling with growing pains. 
So church discipline does not hold us accountable to any one person nor an institution, but church discipline holds us accountable to God's word. That is to say that church discipline is the communal accountability of spiritual discipline in our lives. As one of our deacons, Cody Davis, put it when I was discussing this topic with him earlier this week, that church discipline is not a means of oppression, but a, a grace given by God as a means to keep us, his bride, pure in fellowship with him and free from the powers of darkness. See, church discipline is that means of God's grace which empowers us to bear with one another. We can't bear with one another if we're just simply allowing for one another's sinfulness. Finally, how do we as a church wield God's word in defense and offense? Look at verse 16 again there of chapter 3. Verse 16, chapter 3. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So how do we wield God's word? By not forsaking the gathering of the saints for worship. When we collectively lift our voices in corporate worship with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are joining the chorus of the angels in heaven, joining the melody of all creation and singing the greatness of God. So why would we so flippantly approach our attendance as if it's optional? See, in closing, this is why the second and third paragraphs of our statements of affirmation in our new church covenant state the following. If we'll go ahead and get, thank you. That we will walk together in brotherly love with authenticity and accountability, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another, as well as faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may acquire, require. If necessary, we will submit to the church discipline process as outlined in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and the bylaws of our church. And then the next paragraph says this, that we will embrace biblical community by holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Focus on how to stir one another up to love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglecting to pray for ourselves and others. We will intentionally and continually pursue biblical relationships with one another as the Lord uses us to accomplish His will for our sanctification and faithfully observe the Lord's Supper, often with all discernment and self-examination. So why is the Lord's Supper on there. Why is that included? Because do the, as often as you drink this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in taking the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the gospel. We are proclaiming what God has done in us through his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for the change that it has affected and is affecting within our hearts. I pray that you would be with us as we continue this process of, of leading ourselves through this membership class. And, and as we do so, help us to remain focused on your word as the center of it all.
God, may you be glorified in all things at all times in our fellowship. Help us to not take for granted the assembling of ourselves together and flippantly approach our attendance. Help us to make sure that we are continually leading one another to God's word, pushing and pulling each other, admonishing one another when occasion requires. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.